Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Hey guys, good to see y'all this morning. Hey, wanna, uh, I know they've already said thanks, but I want to say thanks again uh, to particularly Josh and Elizabeth who put that banquet on. It was just amazing. We don't know how much money was raised, but they're thinking maybe even $200,000 for international missions. Can you believe that? One night. <laughs> we think we want to do a sportsman's banquet for the church budget now. So <laughs> why am I here? That's a question we all need to ask. Not why am I here right now in this place, in this room? Some of you have been asking that question already this morning. Why am I here? What am I doing here, right? But it's the bigger existential question. Why am I here? Why do I exist? What's my purpose in life? Is there a purpose in life? What's it all about, really? What, are, what on earth am I here for? Now, that's a question that we need to know. And, and to be honest with you, that's a question that a lot of people are really struggling to answer. And the consequences of that are fairly predictable. Why am I here? Um, and I think the answer to it comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. So I want to I start a study this morning on the book of Ecclesiastes. So you've got about 30 minutes to find it, okay? Ecclesiastes, here's how you find it. You just open your Bible to the middle if you've got a paper Bible. If you've got a, like a computer Bible like on your phone, just type in Ecclesiastes, okay? But if you don't have that, open about to the middle. If you hit Psalms or Proverbs, go right. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. If you hit Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Lamentations, go back to the left and you'll find it there. Let me, let me set the scene. Ecclesiastes is a book that's written by Solomon. We'll get to that in a second. But it's a book of exploration. It's almost like a diary of a man who walked through all of the possible alternatives to to finding significance and meaning in life. And I've got to tell you, I am not excited about teaching this book because it's a dark book. It's a, it's a difficult book. It, it's a gritty book, but it's a book that is at the very heart of what we are experiencing in our culture right now today. And so it's a vital book, and that's why we're there. So if you found it by now, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, these are the words of the teacher, and that word teacher in the ancient Hebrew was koheleth. Um, in the Greek Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, it was Ecclesiastes. Uh, these are the words of the teachers, kind of a hard word to get at. Sometimes it's translated preacher, sometimes it's translated teacher. The word literally meant the one who calls the assembly together for the purpose of communication. So teacher, preacher, you, you fill in the blank. But he defines who that is, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. So we've got two clues there. He's the son of David, and he was a king in Jerusalem. 1 verse 12 adds, king over Jeru Israel in Jerusalem. And apart from David, there was only one other king that ruled Israel from Jerusalem, and that's Solomon. And so Solomon it is. Well, that's, that's brought up a question. How can the same guy who wrote the book of Proverbs have possibly written the book of Ecclesiastes? Because Proverbs is so optimistic and so definitive. You know, if you do this, good things are going to happen. God blesses the righteous and all of that. But in, in Ecclesiastes, as we're going to see, it's stuff like vanity of vanities, meaningless. The whole life is meaningless. 
It's like, how do you reconcile those two things? I think it's fairly simple. The, the book of Proverbs was written by a young man who was full of faith and who was parroting the teaching of his father who was a man after God's own heart and who had walked with God faithfully. And so those things that he had learned from his teacher and from his dad become foundational through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit into the Bible as the book of Proverbs, couplets of truth and life, general ideas of wisdom. But Ecclesiastes is a book that's written by an older guy, and it's an older guy who has fallen away from faith, has walked in darkness, and has now come back around. And it's like the journal uh, of his journey away from faith. You know, Solomon at one point had 900 concubines. This is a guy that had indulged himself as every megalomaniac often does, and he had drifted far from God, but now he's back. He's like, here's what I've learned. And from that, we learn so much about who we are as a people and how we think. And so he he starts by stating the thesis. It's almost as if he's doing this academic paper. His hypothesis was simple. He says three things, the question, the context, and the conclusion. And and unlike an academic paper, he doesn't start with the hypothesis. He starts with the conclusion, which is unusual. Normally, you'd state the hypothesis, give the parameters of the study, and then at the end, you would give the conclusion. But Solomon's not doing an academic paper. This is stuff that's true to life. This is heart-touching stuff. It's gut-wrenching stuff. Here's where I I want you to know. Here's what I want you to hear more than anything else. So I'm going to lead with this, and here it is. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. told you it was a morose book. That word vanity is difficult to translate. It's a word that means vapor. In some translations, it's translated meaningless. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything's meaningless. If this world is all we have, if this is all we get, then our existence doesn't make sense. Why go through it? Why go through the trouble? And and then he begins with the question, Verse 3, what advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? And that word advantage means success, completion, satisfactorily finished. What advantage, what difference does it make? That's really the question. In all of his work, and that's not really the word work in terms of occupational work, it's, it's work in terms of struggle. What difference does it make, all this pain, all this suffering, all this struggle, all these hurts, all this heartache, and at the end of the day, we're just going to die, and death's going to wipe it all out. Atheistic existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre said the exact same thing. He said, man's right to pursue his high ideals, but in the end, death mocks everything. Martin Heidegger said that death is the background music that plays throughout our life. And there are times when we can blot it out, but there are other times when it rises to such a crescendo that we cannot be unaware of it. And if that's the case, then what's the point? Because look at the, look at the context, and I've highlighted it there uh, in all caps, which he does under the sun. That's a way of saying on this earth without an eternal perspective. How do you find meaning if all you have is this world? And the answer is, you don't. It's vanity. It's meaningless. And let me tell you something. That's exactly where we find ourselves today. We're living in a world that is chained to this ball, and and the perspective is totally 
under the sun. This is all you get. It's like Carl Sagan said in the introduction to his series, Cosmos. The cosmos is all there ever was, all there is, and all there ever will be. And if that's the case, and I die, then what difference did it make? And and Solomon's going to show us. Some people try one thing, others try another. He tried it all, and none of it seemed to sort of pan out. But I thought it would be important for us to talk for a minute about how we got here. How did we leave a spiritual worldview and find ourselves chained to the ball? And so let's talk about the path to life under the sun. It's really a path from rationalism uh, to rationalism, from inspiration, uh, to unbelief, from faith. And I know this doesn't interest most of you, um, and some of you are going to struggle for the next couple of minutes. But uh, let's talk about how we got to where we are, okay? Because you have to realize that our, our values and our beliefs are shaped by our cultural perspective. For example, in America, we value the concept of forgiveness, right? Of being kind and forgiving. Why do we do that? Genghis Khan's culture did not value the concept of kindness and forgiveness. Why do we? Well, that's because that's Jesus, and that's what Jesus taught. And and originally, our nation was founded on on Jesus' teaching and Jesus' values and Jesus' beliefs, and it was disseminated through the churches into the hearts of the people, and the people basically embraced a biblical worldview, right? No, Nobody had that view. Even the Jews didn't have that view. The Jews were after justice, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You know, you black my eye, I'm going to black your eye. The Romans were after power. I may have to make a lesson of you to prove how powerful I am so that nobody challenges my authority. They had no concept whatsoever of forgiveness. And then here comes Jesus and he's teaching forgiveness. And we embrace that and it becomes a core value within our culture that even today, people who don't believe in Jesus still believe in forgiveness. Where did they get that? Well, they got that from Jesus. And then all of a sudden there's been this Radical shift away from Christianity, away from Judeo-Christian ethics, away from Jesus, and toward a greater rationalism and naturalism, okay? And so what I'm going to try to explain to you is how the ethics of Jesus were replaced by the ethics of the intellectuals. And it really started in the 17th century. So let's start there with the 17th century scientific breakthroughs. During the 17th century, the great thinkers had redefined the mechanics of the universe. Newton had discovered the laws of motion. Kepler had studied planetary laws. Boyles was experiencing breakthroughs in chemistry and Leibniz in calculus. And all of this had a profound effect on how we understand our world. In fact, scholars would say that the modern mind lived off the 17th century until Einstein. And these scientific breakthroughs not only changed the way we saw the world, but they changed the way that we began to understand God. The universe was beginning to be seen not so much as something that God intimately controlled, but something that was controlled by the natural laws of nature. Now, God still had a hand in it in that He created it, but he was more distant and uninvolved, and the, the universe was somewhat like, like a clock, okay? And God was the clockmaker, but he wasn't intimate. Um, and, and from this came the idea of deism. And deism is an idea that believes that there is a God, but he has no real 
influence, say, or involvement in our lives. It's sort of like a, a grandpa who's puttering away out in the shop somewhere that doesn't really care what's going on in our lives. And many of our founding fathers were deists. John Adams, Jefferson, Washington. I hate to break your bubble, but those guys were deists. Then came Immanuel Kant, and Kant elevated the idea of reason. Kant maintained that one ought to think autonomously, free of the dictates of external authority. And, And essentially what Kant said was, if God is distant, then how do we define morality? And he came up with what he called categorical imperatives, which are ideas about ethics and morality that should be uh, constant with everybody. And so he came up with these three broad governing ideas, categorical imperatives about how we then live together. But what I want you to see is what has happened is our understanding of morality and ethic has now been uh, uh, severed from biblical revelation. He still believes in doing the right thing, but he believes that for a very different reason. He believes it because it's rational. It's it's an idea of belief. In fact, he would deny the validity of biblical inspiration. We don't need God to tell us how to live. Reason can do that. And our moral obligations come not from the Bible, but from our collective sense of right and wrong. And then came Hegel, George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, and he taught that new is always better than old. And man, you think we haven't embraced it. This is an an ideology we are all in. I mean, every box of soap you buy is what? New and improved. Because we all have bought into the idea that new is always better than old. And for Hegel, that applied to everything. Everything is dynamic. And this revolutionized the idea of truth. In the past, truth was fixed. It was static. You didn't create truth. You discovered truth. So Aristotle would point to a table and say, that's a table. It's fixed. It's always going to be a table. It's a table. It's like truth is like math. It's unchanging. Hegel would look at that and say, yeah, it's a table now, but it was a tree. And after it's a table, it's going to be ash. And so our understanding of truth is really tied to where we are in a moment in time. It's dynamic. It's evolving. Hegel, of course, confused knowledge with truth. Um, You know, the fact of the matter is doctors know more about treating human body than ever before. So in that regard, new is better than old. I'd much rather go to a doctor today than one 100 years ago, right? I'd much rather go to a dentist today than one 100 years ago. They're way better. But they haven't discovered any new truth. They've just discovered more truth. That's knowledge. Knowledge is the acquisition of truth. The the body works the way the body has always worked in the interplay and interchange between, you know, chemistry and blood vessels and all that stuff. It, It hasn't changed. It's not like there's a new truth here. But Hegel didn't get that, and he would disagree with that. Hegel said everything exists in a dynamic state of change, even truth, and that means truth is not static, it's dynamic. What does that do to us ethically and morally? Okay, here it is. It creates a thing called relativism. We're not looking for some absolute truth that governs our behavior. Now truth is relative to the moment and the individual. And so you have your truth and I have my truth. 
And you see the power of the rational mind, right? Marx took Hegel and applied it to politics and came up with communism. Darwin took Hegel, applied it to biology, and came up with evolution. And the German scholars took Hegel and applied it to the Bible and came up with classic liberalism, which was the next phase of changing our understanding of authority. The German scholars in classic liberalism had this overly optimistic view of rationalism. And so what they did was they said, we're going to scientifically examine the Bible and and critique it textually, looking for, for clues based upon our rational understanding. And that's exactly what they did. Now, the problem was many of their preconceived ideas were totally flawed. For example, one of the things the classic liberal Germans uh, thought was that Moses could not have written the first five books of the Bible because Moses couldn't write. I mean, that was their basic assumption. They had not discovered any uh, text that would reveal that Moses could have, been, uh, could have written it. And so this guy named Wellhausen, which I know you're not, you don't care about, and there's no test, Uh, He developed this elaborate concept that the first five books weren't written by Moses, but they were a compilation of oral history passed down for, for, you know, 1,100, 1,200 years until they were compiled together post-exilic Israel and from that. And all of that was based on the idea that Moses could not have written. Well, since that time, they've discovered not only could Moses have written and, and new writing, but he would have been very good at it because he was raised in Pharaoh's palace. Here's another example. They believe that David wasn't a real historical character, that he was like King Arthur in the Knights of the Round Table because they didn't find any extra biblical allusions to any king of David over Israel. And then in 1999, some Jewish archaeologists were working up around the northern city of Dan, and they had come across some some stones with some engravings on them. And the two things that the stone said on them was, King of Israel of the house of David. And it sent shudders through the archaeological community. You guys never heard about it, right? Because David's a fictional character until they found out he wasn't. And that happened time and time again with the textual critics and the German liberals of the 1800s. Rudolf Bultmann was so filled with the hubris of a Hegelian understanding of truth that he said that miracles in the Bible are literary devices that need to be gotten out of the way in order to find the real truth. And so Bultmann and his ilk went about demythologizing the Bible. And what's one of the first things they got to demythologize? The virgin birth, right? We know that there's no such thing as a virgin birth. It could not have occurred. And therefore, what they said was, Jesus was born of a man, just like everybody else is. There was no supernatural Holy Spirit involvement in that. And and what does that do to Jesus? Well, now he's just a man, right? What does it do to the cross? Well, you don't have you don't have a cross moment. The cross was just a uh, you know as as the. Uh, irreverent comedian Lenny Bruce would say, one of those parties that got out of hand. No resurrection, no redemption, no sin, no righteousness. And this reinforces an idea that was already in play called Unitarianism. And Unitarianism is this idea that Jesus was one stuff. He wasn't part of Trinitarianism. He wasn't connected with God. He was just a man. But without redemption of the cross, without resurrection, what's the point And how do you get to heaven if there is one? Either nobody goes or everybody goes. So you know what they said? Well, everybody goes. In Unitarianism, 
was wed to universalism. And, and that way of thinking by the early 1800s had invaded the most prominent theological school in the country, a little school up in the Northeast called Harvard. And all of these pastors were taught classic liberalism, Unitarianism, universalism, until the church no longer believed the Bible. Ralph Waldo Emerson and the Transcendentalists came along. Emerson was the son of a Unitarian pastor, and he was influenced by the Enlightenment, but he was still searching for a way to connect to the Spirit. And so Emerson essentially said that the way we commune with God is through communion with nature. He wrote, He who is in love is wise and is becoming wiser. Sees newly every time he looks at the object beloved, drawing from it with his eyes and his mind those virtues which it possesses. And so the idea was, it's almost a Zen idea. Transcendentalism means that I've got to commune with nature, and in communing with nature, I somehow connect with God. Because God has become distant and uninvolved. He's not moral. He has no dictates. There is no, there is no cross. There is no uh, redemption. There is none of that. So how do I commune with God? Well, I get alone uh, as Thoreau would at Walden Pond. And, and Emerson and Thoreau and those others were such eloquent writers that they became the mouthpiece of a whole movement. And do you feel the shift? The spiritual has now become natural. And nature, not God, has become preeminent. Then came Darwin. And Darwin took Hegel's ideas of dynamic nature of truth, applied it to biology, and his conclusion was man wasn't created at all. He evolved through natural selection and random choice. And for the first time, they had an answer to creation. And that final thread to heaven was severed. Not long after that, in 1882, Nietzsche declared God is dead. Here's what Nietzsche wrote. The most important of more recent events, that God is dead, that the belief in the Christian God has become unworthy of belief, already begins to cast its first shadow over Europe. In fact, we philosophers and free spirits feel ourselves irradiated as by a new dawn by the report that the old God is dead. You know what's ironic about that? Toward the end of his life, Nietzsche became hopelessly insane and was institutionalized and remained in mental darkness the rest of his life. And yet Nietzsche's making a comeback among the young adults in the Reddit crowd in our culture. But here's what happened. To the intellectuals, life on this planet is all there is. It's life under the sun. Why do I drag you through all of this? Why, it's like, Bill, why did you just waste like four or five minutes of my life? Because it's important to know how we got where we are so you'll understand what's going on where we are, okay? And I'm not anti-intellectual. I'm not saying reason is bad. And I'm not implying that people don't know a lot. People know a lot. I'm glad they know a lot. Some people know a lot. I was listening to Dave Bergazzi, and he's hilarious. But Bergazzi said, if, if I went back in time with some piece of modern technology, I don't think it would make any difference at all. He said, I, I, I'd have a cell phone and somebody would go, what's that you got? And it, it's like, I, it's a cell phone. You talk to other people with it. And they're like, how's it work? And for God's he go, I don't know. Uh, something about satellites. What's a satellite? I wish I hadn't said that, you know. And 
I'm, for one, grateful that some people know a lot because we have air conditioning and we have modern medicine and we have sophisticated technology and all. I'm all, I'm grateful for that. Some people know a lot. Some, a lot of people know a little. (laughs) I read recently that two-thirds of Americans did not know that there are three branches of government. Two-thirds, 66% of Americans don't know. But whether you know a lot or whether you know a little, everybody thinks they know everything. So the same people, two-thirds of America, who don't even understand how government works, have very strongly ingrained political perspectives that they will die for because they know everything. Here's what we need to remember. There's a limit to reason. Some people know a lot, a lot of people know a little, but nobody knows everything. And we can't trust it. You say, why did we go this way? Well, we, over, we overestimated our, our own intelligence. Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. I mean, look around. Our rationalism has become totally irrational. We allow men into women's locker rooms now. Some guy did an interview on college campuses and asked the simple question, can you define what a woman is? And they couldn't define what a woman is. One one woman said, the only person that can define what a woman is, is a woman. He said, oh, really? Are you a cat? She said, no. He said, well, can you define a cat? She said, I wish I had never talked to you. And off she walks. We laugh. We think it's funny, but y'all... The most recent Supreme Court justice was asked that simple question and she could not define what a woman was. I love what one guy said. He said, we've educated ourselves into imbecility. And the rational mind has become irrational because we overestimated our own intellect. Secondly, and I think more importantly, we don't want a Lord Truthfully, this is a big part of it. Look at verse 5 of Romans 8. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. If you're inclined toward the flesh against the Spirit, you're going to set your mind on the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Now look at verse 7. This explains why. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. Because in our heart, at our core, we have a rebellious spirit, and we want to believe that we're right and God's wrong. And finally, I think the third reason is we can't understand the spirit. Only, the spirit only makes sense to the spiritual. 1 Corinthians 2.14, but people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it, for only those who are spiritual can understand what the spirit means. That's where we are. You say, okay, let's talk about the consequences of it. This is the part that's most important. I see four devastating consequences to this rise of rationalism. First is relativism. Truth is relative. Morals are relative. There's no such thing as absolute truth. My truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. Don't judge my truth. I won't judge your truth. That's exactly what every Oprah Winfrey show I ever saw ended with. Didn't matter what the person was doing. How do you have a conversation uh, where truth is so individualistic? You can't even have a conversation. All you can do is scream at each other, which is where we are. Secondly is naturalism. 
Chuck Colson writes this. And, and by the way, read anything you can find from Colson. He's gone now. He's in heaven. But he was such a brilliant mind. He said, in a totally relativistic world, of course, it's impossible to say that one creature has greater worth than another or even that an individual has greater worth than nature. Since humans come from nothing and are going nowhere, there is no basis for human dignity and no logical reason to believe we're better than any other living thing. It is perfectly logical, therefore, that activists fight for the rights of endangered baby seals while not blinking an eye at the abortion of unborn humans. Or as Ingrid Newkirk president of the people for the ethical treatment of animals, put it, a rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. And when I, when I hear things, I hear whispers of Emerson. Nature, they say, not man is the, is the most important thing. And I get it. Nature has its needs, and we need to protect it. It's God's creation, and we don't need to defile nature. I'm a a tree hugger at heart in that regard. But at the end of the day, man, not nature, was God's crowning creation. He said, let us make man in our image and let them rule over creation. So if i got to choose between a, a turtle on the road or my family in the car, that turtle is history because people are more important. But that naturalism wouldn't say that. The third thing is intolerance. People can't live with tension. So when one group arrives at a consensus, they move to eliminate all the dissenting opinions. And that's what we see going on. It started out with accept me, and then it went to agree with me, And then it went to stop talking. You don't have a right to talk because your opinion isn't our opinion. And that's what's going on in our world. But the last thing and the one that Solomon addressed is despair. Francis Schaeffer said, humanism always leads to despair. I read an article in the New Yorker entitled, Why Americans Are Dying from Despair. It said this, the oversupply of opioids did not create the conditions for despair. Instead, it appears the oversupply fed upon a white working class already adrift. And although opioid deaths plateaued, at least temporarily, in 2018, suicides and alcohol-related deaths continued upward. And the author tried to work it out. She, she couldn't figure out what the co- cause of, of the despair was. She, she wondered if despair wasn't linked to obesity. I mean, I got to admit, when I look in the mirror, it's depressing. But that's not the cause of our despair. She wondered if it wasn't economic disparity. And you can, you can hear her blinded by her own prejudices, right? But she never considered that maybe the despair came from losing our way and forgetting God. This may be the greatest quote I've ever read on this, Phil Yancey. And by the way, if you find anything from Phil Yancey, read it too. He said, the alternative to disappointment with God seems to be disappointment without God. Did you hear that? The alternative to disappointment with God seems to be disappointment without God. The center of me, said Bertrand Russell, is always and eternally a terrible pain, a curious wild pain, a searching for something beyond what the world contains. Despair. Here's the big question. If there is no God, 
and he had no hand in our creation. He has no involvement in our daily life. If there is no God, then why is everyone so miserable without him? If there is no God, then why do we feel so lost without him? If there is no God, then why is there something in our heart that desperately and constantly cries out to him? If there is no God, then we're living a meaningless right. Solomon was right. And he started with his conclusion, vanity of vanity, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Empty, empty, everything is empty. What advantage does man have in all of his struggles? What's the point of living if all of our life is lived under the sun? And we're seeing the consequences of that perspective, that worldview played out in the headlines of the paper all around us. Here's the good news. They're wrong. Jesus was right. I say that because you may be wondering yourself and you may be struggling with despair and you may be haunted by that that question that's just like a nagging splinter. Why bother? What difference do I make? Here's what I want you to understand. There is a God. He made you. He loves you. And He's got a plan for your life. Did you hear that? And He wants a relationship with you. If you didn't hear anything else I I said today, that's it. You don't have to live in despair. There is a God. He loves you. He made you. He has a plan for your life. And that means that your life can have meaning, significance, and purpose. But you've got to give that life over to Him. And if you've never done that, I want to invite you to do that today. Just to say, God, I I don't have it all figured out. I don't have it all sorted out. But I know something in my heart is longing for you. And I thank you that you love me enough to send your son to the cross to die and atone for my sins and then be resurrected so that I can know what it is to have eternal life. That's the promise of the word of God. And that's a truth that will never change. But you've got to accept it. You ready to accept it today? Would you just pray with me as we pray across this room? If you're listening on the internet right now or on the radio, here it is. Father, I've been living in despair and struggling with meaning and purpose and wondering, what's the point? And I realize now that I've I've allowed myself to get chained to life under the sun. And it's meaningless. So Father, in this moment, I'm looking up and I'm crying out. I'm just saying, God, do for me what I can't do for myself. I give you my life. Would you just say that to the Father right now? God, I give you my life. Fill me with faith. Fill me with hope. Fill me with courage. Fill me with significance. Fill me, Father, with purpose and meaning and value. 
Father, we thank you that even though we live in a world of lies, that we still know the truth. And as Jesus said, if we abide in your word, we'll know the truth and the truth will make us free. Father, there are people who've come in this morning weighted down with despair. And in this moment, they've been released from that and they now know the truth and that truth is liberating. I thank you that salvation comes through the name of Jesus alone. I thank you for the power to heal and the power to change. And I thank you for the plan and purpose you have for every single one of us. And that you loved us enough and found us to be significant enough that you sent your son to the cross for us. And we glorify you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.